0: Well, I'll have you remain standing for just a minute. You can take your Bibles. We're going to read in just a moment. But I hope that you came expecting to hear something wonderful this morning because you're going to. Not because of me, not because of what I say, because as I I have nothing really to offer you of my own, I am not holy enough or smart enough or eloquent enough to have anything of my own to offer you. In fact, as I stand before you from week to week, I am most helpful to you when I am as out of the way as possible, because though I have nothing to say of my own, I have the privilege of bearing God's inspired, eternal, sufficient, inerrant word in the scriptures before you. I am relating to you what God says, not what I say. And that is why it will be wonderful, whatever it is from God's word. But this particular uh, verse that we're going to look at this morning, and we're just going to look at one verse, is a wonderful, wonderful verse. Let's do that now. Turn to Philippians chapter 1. It is there that we will find this wonderful thing, this wonderful statement, this wonderful verse. In fact, as we look at this, we are going to hear this morning one of the greatest, the most precious, the most powerful, most assuring promises in the Bible for Christians to hear, for us to be reminded of. I'm going to read just the first six verses this morning. And it is the last one that will be our attention this morning. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you this morning for your word. We thank you that you have given it to us. Not just this verse, not just this chapter, not just this book, but this entire word of scripture that you have given to us. Um, Your word in writing for us to see, for us to learn from, for you to instruct us through and correct us through. We pray, Father, that as we rejoice in these few words this morning that you would bless us through them. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Well, let's get our grounding here as we get started and and just quickly work our way down to verse 6. Paul opens his letter to the church in Philippi, again, a very special church to Paul, a church that he had founded, of course. Uh, He opens the letter by first identifying himself and his audience in verses 1 and 2. Paul and Timothy, who is with him, servants of Christ Jesus, he says, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and the deacons. He says, deacons, he says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, Uh, opening up this time, welcoming them with the words of God, uh, as we often do, as we do every Sunday morning when I raise my hand to, to make it clear that this is coming from God to us. And we say, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, God blessing us as his people as we gather. Paul does this here as he writes to the Philippian church. Then he assures them of his thankfulness for them. Thankfulness because of what he calls here in in verse 3, his remembrance also in every prayer of mine. He says in verse 5, because of your partnership in the gospel, because of your, your fellowship, your participation in the gospel, which he says has been from the first day until now, referring to how they've been working out their faith by by participating in the spread of the gospel. And you'll remember that uh, even last week we, we looked at how the church is encouraged by Paul to itself be stepping out to, to preach the gospel and he says to the Philippians, I thank God because you have been doing that. You have been participating with me in this work of spreading the gospel. And perhaps it is as he writes the phrase here from the first day until now that through the Holy Spirit, he is, Paul is prompted to remember a great truth. And he passes on that great truth to them. And he passes on that great truth to us this morning. And the great truth is that truth that we see in verse 6, where Paul says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. God will complete the work that he has begun in each of you this morning, saints of God. Each of you who believe in Jesus Christ, who have placed your faith in him. This is Paul's confidence concerning God to you. And in this verse we find a very plain statement of the doctrine of God's preservation of his people. A doctrine that is of such necessity to us, men and women with feet of clay, men and women with sinful dispositions, men and women who struggle with sin on a daily basis, who struggle often with assurance, who struggle with, because of our sin, because of our weakness, very often we say, How can God still love me? How can I be sure that God will still love me tomorrow and on into eternity? You know, we are people who can say that we are like the apostles, which we might think would give us cause to rejoice until we realize that one of the apostles has forever been known through history as a doubter, doubting Thomas. You don't just know him as Thomas, he is doubting Thomas. We also know that the the greatest of the apostles, when the chips were down, he denied that he even knew Jesus. And all of the apostles, we read, that when things got bad, they left, they hid. So when we say that we are like the apostles... In that way, that's not such a great thing. And, but that makes the promise and the doctrine that this verse teaches all the more glorious to us, all the more precious to us. And it is all the more sad that there are some Christians who don't even believe this. It's right here, and not just here. It's throughout the Scriptures, especially throughout the New Testament. But there are many who don't believe what Paul says here our own standards our doctrinal standards of course the scripture is our primary doctrinal standards but the doctrine doctrinal standards of the church have reflected this teaching they are very clear I'm going to quote real quickly from not one of the OPC's doctrinal standards, but uh, one of the doctrinal standards, and we went through it just a little bit ago in our Thursday night study the Canons of Dort, a very important and very wonderful doctrine of Christian truth. It talks about God's preservation. And it says that because of the remnants of sin dwelling in them, that's us, and also because of the temptation of the world and Satan. Those who have been converted could not remain standing in this grace if left to their own resources. But God is faithful, they go on to say, mercifully strengthening them in the grace once conferred on them and powerfully preserving them in it to the end. That's just what Paul is saying. Now, it is important for us to understand that that this work spoken of in verse 6, this work ongoing and the work that is promised to be completed assumes a work that has been begun. That is to say, Paul is speaking here to Christians. The assurance of this verse, the comfort of this verse, is for those who are united to Christ, for those who are trusting in Christ. In verse 1, Paul said that he's writing to all the saints in Christ Jesus. And so we're going to look at this work. We're going to look at four things about it. They're in your bulletin on the outline there. We're going to look at its nature, its author, its duration, and its end, its goal. What of its nature? What is this like? What is Paul talking about when he speaks of a good work that has been and is being done in the dear brothers and sisters in Philippi and in the lives of the dear brothers and sisters in Reading and in the dear brothers and sisters in Christ wherever they might be found. You know, the good work of God done in a Christian's life spreads as far as we can think into many areas. But specifically here Paul is talking as he says about a good work, he says, that is being done in you. In Christians, And that sets it apart. That takes this huge scope of what God does in regard to our salvations and narrows it down. Paul's talking about something specifically here. It separates it, or, or it uh, distinguishes it, let's put it that way, because it never can be separated from the other aspects of your overall salvation, all of which are part of the whole of the work of God in saving you or me or Paul or the Philippians or anyone else. And of course, it all began back in eternity past. The fountainhead of of all of the rest of the blessings that we have is God's choosing to give those blessings to us. As God, in His sovereign counsel in eternity past, chose to set His saving work on you and to give you to His Son Jesus, to give you as part of His people. It is a good work that is done. That is a good work that is done concerning you. So that's not exactly what Paul's talking about here, because that, that election was God doing something concerning you, making a decision. Part of our salvation is also what we call justification. That's a good work. But it is one that is done on our behalf. When, based on that electing grace of God and upon the redemptive work of Jesus Christ, God declares something about you, declares the believing sinner innocent from their sins and right in his sight. As we are forgiven of our sins and credited with all of the righteousness, the positive righteousness of Christ. That is a declaration that is made about you before the bar of the court of heaven. So that's not quite what Paul is talking about here. It's the same with adoption. That's part of the work that God does in salvation. It too, though, is not done in you per se, but it is a change of your status a change of status concerning you as you are received into the number and have a right to all of the privileges of the sons of God, our confession says. But here in the context of this passage, in this verse that we're looking at, Paul is speaking of a work that is done in Christians. To them. Now there are several that could be up for consideration even among that. One work that is done in us is the work of regeneration. We often speak of that as being born again. Our hearts changed, a work of the divine spirit of God, changing our hearts and our minds and our affections, our wills, all of that being renewed by the Holy Spirit in here, in us. And that is, in fact, the beginning of this good work that is being done in us. Regeneration is a work in us. It is a work that happens once, in an instant, and then is itself complete and is not repeated. There's also another future act of the grace of God that will happen at the other end of your salvation that will also happen to you and in you. John said that now we are children of God, and he says, We know that when he appears that we will be like him because, he says, we will see him just as he is. Paul speaks of that same activity, that same action in Romans 8 as our glorification. When our bodies and our souls are made perfect on the last day and it too is, will take place at one time then at the end of time when Christ returns and it will be done in an instant and that will be done to you. But Paul's still speaking of something a little different here in Philippians 1 and verse 6. Now in one sense he's speaking of all of that rolled into one that God who has started your salvation who has done all of those other things has put you on well we'll call it the road to glory the road to the celestial city. And he will see to it, Paul is saying here, that you will arrive at the end of that journey. You will not end up on a, in a ditch on the way to the celestial city, but you will arrive safe. But in another sense, and I think in the main sense here, Paul is talking about what happens on the journey itself. Because mixed in with all of these wonderful, glorious, divine acts of God at those un- individual points of time, there is this road that we're traveling. And there is a work which God is most certainly doing in us, as Paul says, all the way along that road. And that's what Paul's talking about. Paul is speaking of that ongoing work here. One that has been started, one that is ongoing, and Paul says, I am sure it is one who will be completed. It is a work that we call sanctification. That's what Paul's talking about. And it's a twofold work, really. It is a work of God preserving and perfecting us, you. Preserving you, perfecting you. First, it is a work of preserving you. Listen to this from 1 Thessalonians five twenty three. He says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now that's a blessing or a prayer, it's an inspired prayer. And is Paul warranted in expecting it to be answered? Well, yes, he is. Because he goes on in the next verse, and listen to what he says. He says, He who calls you is faithful, and he will surely do it. Again, may the God of peace sanctify you completely. May your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. May he finish that work that he has begun. And he goes on and he says, He who calls you, God, is faithful, and he will surely do it. If if you highlight verses in your Bible, if you underline verses in your Bible, highlight 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24. It's a great promise. We are kept. We are preserved. We are protected. And we can be sure of this, that because of our wickedness and our fallenness and our weakness, we can be sure of this fact as well from our side, that if we could fall away, if we could lose our salvation, if we could end up in a ditch on the way to the celestial city, guess what? We most certainly would. Every one of us. But we can also be assured that God who calls you, that God who saves you, that he is faithful to keep you. He is faithful to preserve you and to sanctify you completely. It means that God keeps us and he preserves us in spite of us. In spite of our sin. It means that though we stumble, though we fall, that because of the power of God and because of the nature of of salvation, that we, as our Westminster Confession of Faith says, can neither totally and finally fall away from the state of grace, but shall certainly persevere therein to the end and be eternally saved. It means, as the Belgic Confession, another confessional document says, that God does not wholly withdraw the Holy Spirit from His own people, even in their grievous falls, nor does He allow them to proceed so far as to lose the grace of adoption and forfeit the state of justification. That all means that God will complete the good work that He has begun in you. It means that God preserves us. So this good work is a work of preservation. But it's more than that. It's not just that God keeps us safe on a little shelf somewhere just to keep us safe in a little container. But it's also a work of perfecting. Again, the Westminster Shorter Catechism Question and answer 35 asks, what is sanctification? And it goes on to answer that sanctification is the work of God's free grace whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and enabled more and more to die to sin and to live unto righteousness. That's the good work that Paul is talking about The work of God in your life, Christian, is not just a work of preservation, but it is a work of progress. It is a work of of perfecting. It is an ongoing work of construction by the Holy Spirit on you. And what is He constructing? What is He constructing in me? What's He constructing in you? What is He building in us? He's building a temple. He's painting a picture. He's painting a, a representation He is, through the word, chiseling away, knocking off edges, smashing some parts, reinforcing others, adding others, all with a purpose, all with a goal, all with a model, all with a plan. Romans 8.29, speaking of, of us being predestined, he says that we are predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. See, we have to be careful as Reformed people who who rejoice in the biblical, thoroughly biblical doctrine of, of predestination and election, that we don't forget that when it talks about election and it talks about predestination, that there's always something that comes with it. Just like here, we are predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. He is causing us, the Spirit is causing us to look more and more in our moral lives, in our moral aspect, like Christ. Back in Ephesians 5, Paul is writing. He's, we generally associate this with a, this passage about marriage. But listen, he says, he says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. The work of Christ through the the Spirit is to sanctify and to cleanse it, the church, us, through the word, so that he can present us complete, not only justified, but thoroughly sanctified on the last day. That is the work that Paul, back in Philippians, that Paul knows and is certain that it will, just as surely as it has begun, that it will be completed. Now how can Paul be so sure about it? How can he be so fully assured of it? How can, More importantly, this morning, how can you be fully assured of it? How can you have the mind of Paul, as it were, to say, I am sure of this? Well, let me give you just a few things. I'll just give you five things that help us to see this and to prove it. The first is, it's proven from the fact of the unchangeableness of God and his decree. The decree of God in eternity past encompasses all things. Everything is included at all times, in all places. And in regard to you, in regard to your salvation, Christian, God will not unchoose those that he has chosen for eternal life. God is faithful to his covenant. He is faithful to his promises. He is faithful to his plan. Jesus echoed that that truth in John 6.37 where Jesus said, All that the Father gives me will come to me. Then he goes on and he says, This is the will of him that sent me. Who sent Jesus? God the Father. What is the will of God the Father? That I should lose nothing of all that he has given me. Have you been given to Christ by the Father? Jesus will not lose you. That's the will of God. Did Jesus do the will of God? Always. And remember, ultimately, that we are not saved because we choose God, but we are saved, ultimately, because God chooses us. He chooses to give us faith. He chooses to chase us down and bring us to himself and to change us so that we say, I want that. I want God. I want Christ. I'm a sinner. We would never do that until God first chases us down and his spirit works in our heart. Beloved Christian, this morning he has begun a good work in you to bring you to himself, to make you fit for your heavenly home to purge the impurities that are in you, to strengthen your faith. That that is his will for you, that that all happen. And his work in you, that work he will complete, Paul says. Numbers 23, 19 says, God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? The unchangeableness of God and of his decree is proof that the good work that he has begun, he will complete. A second proof of this is the efficacy of the work of Christ. Christ died to actually redeem you, to remove your condemnation, now and forever, to remove every obstacle between you and his Father. To remove every obstacle between you and heaven. He died to actually secure it. Not to just make it possible. But as Hebrews says again. He obtained eternal redemption. He didn't obtain the possibility of it. He obtained eternal redemption. He didn't come to cast his vote for you. And Satan cast his vote against you. And leave the deciding vote to you. He came to save you, to redeem you. And to say that some whom God has saved would or could become then unsaved would mean that Christ's death had genuinely been effective to remove your guilt at one point, but then to suddenly no longer be effective to do that. The third proof of what Paul is saying here, the third reason Paul can say, I know this, I am sure of this, is the strength of what we call that golden chain of salvation. You know it, so we won't, well, let's, let me read it. It could be that there are some here this morning who have not heard this, or have not heard it referred to as that. Here's Paul's statement from Romans 8. He says, For those whom he, speaking of God, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that's what we read earlier, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Those, all of those that He did one thing for or two. He did the others. And a chain is only as strong as the weakest link, right? And each link in that chain has the strength of God's divine plan. Glorification is is so much guaranteed in that by by predestination, by sanctification, by being born again and justification, that for those who are any of those things on that list, glorification, which hasn't happened yet, is a foregone conclusion. So much that Paul says all those that he justified, he also glorified. Because he can't, it cannot not happen. And what Paul is saying here is precisely that that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. If you find yourself on that chain at any point, according to God's promise, you can trace it forward, you can trace it backwards, And you can be assured that all of those points are true of you. If you are justified, it is without doubt, going backward, that you were elected, that you were foreknown, that you were predestinated, that you were called effectually. And if you are justified, it is without doubt that you will be glorified. You can be sure that God will complete the work that he began. The fourth reason, the fourth proof, is the decisive nature of justification. Those who have been justified, who have had their sin imputed to Christ and Christ's righteousness imputed to them, are now and forever, Paul says again in Romans 8, in verse 1 of that chapter, without condemnation. The condemnation that would send you to hell is gone completely, forever gone by the work of Christ, by the declaration of God, by the imputation of Christ's righteousness to us. Such that, again, Romans 8, at the end of the chapter, Paul says that no one can lay a charge against you. If your sin is taken care of, Christian, it is taken care of. The only way that you could get it back, if you wanted it back, is if God were to re-impute your sins to you. which is a flat denial of the work of Christ. So we can know that God will finish what he begins. He will not take on a job, the job of completing your salvation and then abandon it. He has declared you righteous, Christian, and he will make you righteous eventually. And this as well proves that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. And then the fifth thing is the indestructible nature of our union with Christ. Nothing, as we saw in Romans 8, nothing, including our ongoing sin, can separate us from the love of Christ. We are placed into union with Christ. We are made to participate in Christ, in his life and his death. And to lose that, to to lose that salvation, for God to abandon us would mean that that union that's formed by the decision of God and forged by the blood of Christ would have to be dissolved. And that's absurd. So here is the good work referred to in Philippians. And a good work it is indeed. It is a work of preservation. God preserving you. It is a work of perfection. God perfecting you. See, God has an intimate concern for the success of his work. And from beginning to end, from planning to consummation, he is the one working. He is the active force. And that brings us to the second thing we want to see. You'll be happy to know the rest of these points are much shorter than that one was. The author of the work. We just need to be reminded of that. The author of the work is he, verse 6. Verse 6. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you. And this is important, that's important to remember. Supreme importance, because because the author, the worker, the doer of the work will have a direct bearing on the success of the work, won't he? The one who would do such a work needs to be willing to do it, and he needs to be able to do it. And fortunately, God is both. He is willing. 2 Peter 3.9, speaking to Christians, he says that he is not willing that any of you should perish. His will is that none of you would perish. His will, which is always done because he's God. Again, 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24, we read earlier, tells us that he will surely do it. He will bring it to pass. God's covenant faithfulness assures it. We saw that in the golden chain of salvation. So God is willing. He's also able. Jude 24 says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. The Scripture presents God the Father as keeping and guarding true believers. Peter refers to believers as those who, by God's grace, he says, are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And John 10.29 says that God the Father keeps you in His hand. And no one is able to take you out. So the Father is willing and able The Son is also... In regards to what we just saw a moment ago, we would have to ask, is it possible that Christ would fail to do the will of His Father? And the answer is, of course not. Is it possible that that God would give, He would entrust someone, you, to His Son, have the Son die in order to remove every barrier to God from you, to remove the wrath of God toward you by taking it on himself, making the the perfect son to bear it, and then to take that person, to take you away from the son and say, I changed my mind. Well, someone might say, no, God doesn't change his mind, but the sinner proves to be unfaithful, and so he is excluded from Christ because of that. He walks away. He jumps out. But do you really think that in the case of any of us, that God didn't know completely about our continuing sinfulness, our continuing unfaithfulness? Did he not know that of every sinner before he gave them to the Son? Of course not. Or or did God only save those and give those to the Son that he judged would be able to get by on their own after being saved? Well, there is no such person. Christ on the cross, the Son of God on the cross, again, obtained redemption. Got it. For everyone who trusts in him. And he gives to each and every one of those what the Bible calls eternal life. John 10, 28, Christ gives eternal life to believers. And if it would be given and then taken back, it's not very eternal. So as we are in the Father's hand, so we are also in Christ's hand with the same assurance and the same confidence that they will never perish. It's also the case, remember, that Jesus continues to intercede for those who place faith in him. So shall we assume, shall we even allow that this intercession would be inadequate somehow or ineffective somehow? No. God forbid, to use Paul's language, the preservation of his people is of personal concern to the Son of God who is your Savior. And he who began the good work in you, what's the word? Will complete it. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit. The Spirit is given to every Christian as a pledge of eternal life. As a promise. Remember, as a down payment. Again, Romans 8 talks about that. He is a down payment of the eternal blessings that you have in Christ that, that, that God gives you. But he would be a sorry pledge indeed, I must say, if some or if even one to whom he was given still perished and did not obtain the very thing of which he is a promise and so the spirit who is given is given to abide John 14:16 says with you forever And so the author of of this work, the triune God, gives us absolute assurance that he who began this good work will complete it. Again, we're reminded that if the success of the work were to depend on you or me or Paul, it would fail. It would be sure to fail. If God did not begin it, it would not have begun. If God did not complete it, it would never be completed. But according to Paul, and he's sure of this, that he who began the good work will complete that work. The third thing that we want to see is the duration of that work. He says he began and he will bring it to completion. God, again, Himself, personally involved in the salvation of you, His people, at all times. This is not a work that that God starts and then says, I'll check back in later on you and see how you're doing. It's not a work that Christ does that with. He doesn't check in on us with a schedule like a foreman at a job. The Spirit doesn't occasionally check in on us. The Spirit dwells in us. Christ is always with us. He is continually, God is continually involved in making us into what He calls us to be and He will continue to do so. Philippians 2.13 says, It is God who is at work in you. 1 Corinthians, 7, or 1, Corinthians 1, verses 7 and 8 God gives his continued grace, his spirit works in you constantly, Paul says, so that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ who will sustain you to the end. Guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Guiltless in that day. And so this work will continue all the way till that last day. It will not be abandoned it will not be cut short. It will not fail because God is the one doing it. He is the he. And the end of the work, and that's our fourth thing, the end of the work, the goal of the work. 1 Corinthians 1.8 says that it is in the day of our Lord Jesus. Philippians 1.6 says it is at the day of Jesus Christ. And so the reference as far as that end of it goes is that it is in reference to the last day. The completion of the work of sanctification In all of God's elect. The consummation of the coming of the kingdom of God. The glorification of the bodies of believers. All of that is the goal of this work. The fulfillment of God's plan for you is where this work is heading. Is what Paul is saying here. He who began it will complete it. Now, some objections sometimes come up regarding this. And the most obvious one is what of those who apparently have fallen away, that a work has been begun, and then it hasn't been completed, that they've abandoned the faith. Well, there are two possibilities, according to what Scripture says. The first is that God will bring them back. Sometimes Christians enter into a period of sin, severe sin sometimes. The confession of faith tells us that they whom God has accepted in his beloved, effectually called and sanctified by his spirit, can neither totally nor finally fall away from the state of grace, but shall certainly persevere therein to the end and be eternally saved. Christians can fall. Christians can sin grievously. But the promise of Scripture is that God does not abandon them. Remember, if God abandoned us because of our sins, guess what? Nobody's in heaven. It's not up to us. It's not our sins and the lack of our sins that led us into heaven. It's the forgiveness of our sins. And it's the righteousness of Christ. So either God will bring them back if they are truly his or they were never saved. They were never truly his. Not all who sit in the church are saved. There are false professions. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, Jesus said, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Not everyone who professes faith possesses faith. And so it behooves us to examine ourselves, Paul said, to to see that we are in the faith. What evidence is there to show that we are in the faith? Merely because we say we are? No, Jesus just said there are those who will call me Lord that I never knew. But the evidence is, if I may put it in short form, the fruit of the Spirit existent and growing in you. Because the Spirit is continuing the work of making us like Christ. And so the evidence of that work is, guess what? Us becoming more like Christ. That is the evidence that the Lord has begun and is continuing that good work. The fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5.22, being made evident. Such a one who professes Christ and sees that work being done, however slowly, however imperfectly, can be assured that God has begun a work and God will complete the work. So that's one objection is those who have fallen away. The other one is is the passages in Scripture that say, if you endure to the end, you will be saved, like Matthew 24, 13 does. What do we say about that? We say, amen. We say, that's right. If you endure to the end, you will be saved. And if God has begun a good work in you, guess what? He will complete it. That is to say, you will endure. And if you don't endure, then you were never His. But no one can endure unless they are supernaturally preserved by God. He preserves us in spite of our sin. All who are united to Christ will endure. We must persevere. We must persevere. We must obey. But those who are the Lord's will. Again, imperfectly. But we will obey. We will persevere. Why will we persevere? How can we persevere knowing ourselves the way we should? Knowing ourselves the way the Scripture describes us? We will persevere, Christian. Because God will preserve us. That's how we know. That's the good work that Paul is talking about here. He who, and he who begins that work will complete it. Really quickly, let's just hear some words and not much more than words of application on this. Christian, what should this do for you as you walk out those doors this morning? What should be in your your mind? What should be in your heart? What should you go out with that maybe you didn't come in with? The first is comfort. Comfort in the face of the unseen nature of tomorrow because we don't know where we will be. We don't know what we'll be doing, but we can be assured of this, that God is faithful. And this is a reminder of it today. We can leave this morning with consolation in the all too clearly seen fact of our sin. Even in spite of our sin, even when we see ourselves falling over and over and and repenting and sorrowful and grieving for our sins, we know that he will complete that work that we don't see advancing as quickly as we'd like. The work that he has begun, he will complete. Take consolation in that. Confidence is another one. Are you weary of this battle this morning? I bet that some of you are. Well, if you're weary with the the battle, share Paul's confidence of this very thing that God will see it through. God's not going to abandon you. You're not going to wind up in a ditch on the road to the celestial city. Christian, rejoice in the sure knowledge that you are well preserved. That you are kept in the hand of God by the hand of God. He who began this this good work of grace in you, he is the faithful covenant God. And he has assured us, and be assured, pilgrim, that he will complete it to his everlasting praise and glory. And to that let us say, Amen. Father, we thank you that despite our sin, despite our weakness, despite our. Our humanity, our fallenness, Lord, that, that you, having begun this good work in us, that you will complete it. Lord, there's not much more for us to say than that except thank you. Thank you that, that we have this confidence. We pray, Lord, that, that we would examine ourselves to see if we are in the faith, that we would not be false professors But we pray, Lord, that we would see, and I pray for each one here, that each one, as they examine themselves, would see the Spirit at work in them, conforming them into the image of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray that as we consider these things, Lord, may we be assured, may we be able to say, I know this, I am sure of this, that you, our great and awesome covenant God, who has begun a great and awesome work in us, will complete it. And may it be to your glory at every step. May we give thanks to you and worship you and praise you at every step until that last day when we will be in your presence forever and will thank you for this work. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.